Section 17 of Now It Can Be Told by Philip Gibbs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 6, Chapters 9 to 13. Chapter 9. I have told how, before the big push, as we called the beginning of these battles, little towns of tents were built under the sign of the Red Cross. For a time, they were inhabited only by medical officers, nurses, and orderlies busily getting ready for a sudden invasion, and spending their surplus energy, which seemed inexhaustible, on the decoration of their camps by chalk-lined paths, red crosses painted on canvas or built up in red and white chalk on level earth, and flowers planted outside the tents. All very pretty and picturesque in the sunshine and the breezes over the valley of the Somme. On the morning of battle, the doctors, nurses, and orderlies waited for their patients and said, Now we shan't be long. They were merry and bright, with that wonderful cheerfulness which enabled them to face the tragedy of mangled manhood without horror and almost, it seemed, without pity, because it was their work, and they were there to heal what might be healed. It was with a rush that their first cases came, and the M.O.s whistled and said, ye gods how many more many more the tide did not slacken it became a spate brought down by waves of ambulances three thousand wounded came from daor on the somme three thousand to corby thousands to durancourt haley pouchevire totencourt and many other clearing stations at daor the tents were filled to overflowing until there was no more room. The wounded were laid down on the grass to wait their turn for the surgeon's knife. Some of them crawled over to haycocks and covered themselves with hay and went to sleep, as I saw them sleeping there like dead men. Here and there shell-shocked boys sat weeping or moaning and shaking with an ague. Most of the wounded were quiet and did not give any groan or moan. The lightly wounded sat in groups telling their adventures, cursing the German machine-gunners. Young officers spoke in a different way, and with that sporting spirit which they had learned in public schools praised their enemy. The machine-gunners are wonderful fellows, topping. Fight until they're killed. They gave us hell. Each man among those thousands of wounded had escaped death a dozen times or more by the merest flukes of luck it was this luck of theirs which they hugged with a kind of laughing excitement it's a marvel i'm here that shell burst all around me killed six of my pals i got through with a blighty wound no bones broken god what luck the death of other men did not grieve them they could not waste this sense of luck in pity the escape of their own individuality this possession of life was a glorious thought they were alive what luck what luck we called the hospital at corby the butcher's shop it was in a pretty spot in that little town with a big church whose tall white towers looked down a broad sweep of the somme so that for miles they were a landmark behind the battlefields behind the lines during those first battles but later in nineteen eighteen when the enemy came nearly to the gates of amiens a stronghold of the australians who garrisoned it and sniped pigeons for their pots off the top of the towers and took no great notice of whiz-bangs which broke through the roofs of cottages and barns 
It was a safe, snug place in July of 16, but that butcher's shop at the corner of the square was not a pretty spot. After a visit there, I had to wipe cold sweat from my forehead and found myself trembling in a queer way. It was the medical officer, a colonel, who called it that name. This is our butcher's shop, he said cheerily. Come and have a look at my cases. They're the worst possible. Stomach wounds, compound fractures and all that. We lop off limbs here all day long and all night. You've no idea. I had no idea, but I did not wish to see its reality. The M.O. could not understand my reluctance to see his show. He put it down to my desire to save his time and explained that he was going the rounds and would take it as a favor if I would walk with him. I yielded weakly and cursed myself for not taking to flight. Yet, I argued, what men are brave enough to suffer, I ought to have the courage to see. I saw and sickened. These were the victims of victory, and the red fruit of war's harvest fields. A new batch of cases had just arrived. More were being brought in on stretchers. They were laid down in rows on the floorboards. The colonel bent down to some of them and drew their blankets back, and now and then felt a man's pulse. Most of them were unconscious, breathing with the hard snuffle of dying. Their skin was already darkened to the death tint, which is not white. They were all plastered with a gray clay, and this mud on their faces was, in some cases, mixed with thick clots of blood, making a hard incrustation from scalp to chin. That fellow won't last long, said the M.O., rising from a stretcher. Hardly a heartbeat left in him. Sure to die on the operating table if he gets as far as that. Step back against the wall a minute, will you? We flattened ourselves against the passage wall, while ambulance men brought in a line of stretchers. No sound came from most of those bundles under the blankets. But from one came a long, agonizing wail, the cry of an animal in torture. "'Come through the ward,' said the colonel. "'They're pretty bright, though we could do with more space and light.' In one long, narrow room there were about thirty beds, and in each bed lay a young British soldier, or part of a young British soldier. There was not much left of one of them. Both his legs had been amputated to the thigh, and both his arms to the shoulder-blades. "'Remarkable man, that,' said the colonel. "'Simply refuses to die.' His vitality is so tremendous that it is putting up a terrific fight against mortality. There's another case of the same kind, one leg gone and the other going, and one arm. Deliberate refusal to give in. You're not going to kill me, doctor, he said. I'm going to stick it through. What spirit, eh? I spoke to that man. He was quite conscious, with bright eyes. His right leg was uncovered and supported on a board hung from the ceiling. Its flesh was like that of a chicken, badly carved white, flabby, and in tatters. He thought I was a surgeon and spoke to me pleadingly. I guess you can save that leg, sir. It's doing fine. I should hate to lose it. I murmured something about a chance for it, and the M.O. broke in cheerfully. You won't lose it if I can help it. How's your pulse? Oh, not bad. Keep cheerful and we'll pull you through. The man smiled gallantly. Bound to come off, said the doctor, as we passed to another bed, gas gangrene. That's the thing that does us down. In bed after bed I saw men of ours, very young men, 
who had been lopped of limbs a few hours ago or a few minutes some of them unconscious some of them strangely and terribly conscious with a look in their eyes as though staring at the death which sat near to them and edged nearer yes said the m o they look bad some of them but youth is on their side i dare say seventy-five per cent will get through if it wasn't for gas gangrene he jerked his head to a boy sitting up in bed smiling at the nurse who felt his pulse looks fairly fit after the knife doesn't he but we shall have to cut higher up the gas again i'm afraid he'll be dead before tomorrow come into the operating theatre it's very well equipped i refused that invitation i walked stiffly out of the butcher's shop of corby past the man who lost both arms and both legs that vital trunk past rows of men lying under blankets past a stench of mud and blood and anesthetics to the fresh air of the gateway where a column of ambulances had just arrived with a new harvest from the fields of the somme come in again any time shouted out the cheery colonel waving his hand i never went again though i saw many other butchers shops in the years that followed where there was a great carving of human flesh which was of our boyhood while the old men directed their sacrifice and the profiteers grew rich and the fires of hate were stoked up at patriotic banquets and in editorial chairs chapter ten the failure on the left hardly balanced by the partial success on the right caused a sudden pause in the operations camouflaged by small attacks on minor positions around and above fricourt and mametz the lincolns and others went over to fricourt wood and routed out german machine-gunners the west yorks attacked the sunken road at fricourt the dorsets manchesters highland light infantry lancashire fusiliers and borderers of the thirty-second division were in possession of la boiselle and clearing out communication trenches to which the germans were hanging on with desperate valor the twenty-first division northumberland fusiliers durham's yorkshires were making a flanking attack on Cantalmaison, but weakened after their heavy losses on the first day of battle the fighting for a time was local in small copses lozenge wood peak wood caterpillar wood acid drop copse where english and german troops fought ferociously for yards of ground hummocks of earth ditches g h q had been shocked by the disaster on the left and the failure of all the big hopes they had held for a breakthrough on both sides of the german positions rumors came to us that the commander-in-chief had decided to restrict future operations to minor actions for strengthening the line and to abandon the great offensive it was believed by officers i met that sir henry rawlinson was arguing persuading in favor of continued assaults on the grand scale whatever division of opinion existed in the high command i do not know it was visible to all of us that for some days there were uncertainty of direction hesitation conflicting orders on july seventh the seventeenth division under general pilcher attacked Contalmaison and a whole battalion of the prussian guard hurried up from valenciennes and thrown on to the battlefield without maps or guidance walked into the barrage which covered the advance of our men and were almost annihilated but although some bodies of our men entered contalmaison in an attack which i was able to see 
they were smashed out of it again by storms of fire followed by masses of men who poured out from mamet's wood the welsh were attacking mamet's wood they were handled as marbot said of his men in the napoleonic battle like turnips battalion commanders received orders in direct conflict with one another bodies of welshmen were advanced and then retired and left to lie nakedly without cover under dreadful fire the seventeenth division under general pilcher did not attack at the expected time there was no coordination of divisions no knowledge among battalion officers of the strategy or tactics of a battle in which their men were involved goodness knows what's happening said an officer i met near memetz he had been waiting all night and half a day with a body of troops who had expected to go forward and were still hanging about under harassing fire on july ninth contal maison was taken i saw that attack very clearly so clearly that i could almost count the bricks in the old chateau set in the little wood and i saw the left-hand tower knocked off by a direct hit of a fifteen-inch shell at four o'clock in the afternoon our guns concentrated on the village and under the cover of that fire our men advanced on three sides of it hemmed it in and captured it with the garrison of the hundred twenty-second bavarian regiment who had suffered the agonies of hell inside its ruins now our men stayed in the ruins and this time german shells smashed into the chateau and the cottages and left nothing but rubbish heaps of brick through which a few days later i went walking with the smell of death in my nostrils our men were now being shelled in that place beyond la boiselle on the left of the albert beaupont road there had been a village called Ouvier. it was no longer there our guns had removed every trace of it except as it lay in heaps of pounded brick the germans had a network of trenches about it and in their ditches and their dugouts they fought like wolves our twelfth division was ordered to drive them out a division of english county troops including the sussex essex bedfords and middlesex and those country boys of ours fought their way among communication trenches burrowed into tunnels crouched below hummocks of earth and brick and with bombs and bayonets and broken rifles and boulders of stone and german stick bombs and any weapon that would kill gained yard by yard over the dead bodies of the enemy or by the capture of small batches of cornered men until after seventeen days of this one hundred and forty men of the third prussian guard the last of their garrison without food or water raised a signal of surrender and came out with her hands up Ouvière was a shambles in a fight of primitive earthmen like human beasts yet our men were not beast-like they came out from those places if they had the luck to come out apparently unchanged without any mark of the beast on them and when they cleansed themselves of mud and filth boiled the lice out of their shirts and assembled in a village street behind the lines they whistled laughed gossiped as though nothing had happened to their souls though something had really happened as now we know it was not until july fourteenth that our high command ordered another general attack after the local fighting which had been in progress since the first day of the battle our field batteries and some of our heavies had moved forward to places like montauban and contalmaison where german shells came searching for them all day long and new divisions had been brought up to relieve some of the men who had been fighting so hard and so long 
It was to be an attack on the second German line of defense on the ridges of the village of Bazentin la Grande and Bazentin la Petite, to Longeval, on the right, and Delville Wood. I went up in the night to see the bombardment and the beginning of the battle, and the swirl of its backwash, and I remember now the darkness of villages behind the lines through which our cars crawled until we reached the edge of the battlefields and saw the sky rent by incessant flames of gunfire while red tongues of flame leaped up from burning villages longeval was on fire and the two bazentines and another belt of land in france so beautiful to see even as i had seen it first between the sandbags of our parapets was being delivered to the charcoal burners i have described that night scene elsewhere in all its deviltry but one picture which i passed on the way to the battlefield could not then be told yet it was significant of the mentality of our high command as was afterward pointed out derisively by sixte von armin it proved the strange unreasoning optimism which still lingered in the breasts of old-fashioned generals in spite of what had happened on the left on the first day of july and their study of trench maps and their knowledge of german machine guns by an old mill-house called moulin vivier outside the village of malti were masses of cavalry indian cavalry and dragoons drawn up densely to leave a narrow passageway for field guns and horse transport moving through the village which was in utter darkness the indians sat like statues on their horses motionless dead silent now and again there was a jangle of bits here and there a british soldier lit a cigarette and for a second the little flame of his match revealed a bronze face or glinted on steel helmets cavalry so even now there was a serious purpose behind the joke of english soldiers who had gone forward on the first day shouting this way to the gap and in the conversation of some of those who actually did ride through bazentine that day a troop or two made their way over the cratered ground and skirted delville wood the dragoon guards charged a machine-gun in a cornfield and killed the gunners germans rounded up by them clung to their stirrup leathers crying pity pity the indians lowered their lances but took prisoners to show their chivalry but it was nothing more than a beau geste it was as futile and absurd as don quixote's charge of the windmill they were brought to a dead halt by the nature of the ground and machine-gun fire which killed their horses and lay out that night with german shells searching for their bodies one of the most disappointed men in the army was on general haldane's staff he was an old cavalry officer and this major of the old old school belonging in spirit to the time of charles lever was excited by the thought that there was to be a cavalry adventure he was one of those who swore that if he had his chance he would ride into the blue it was a chance he wanted and he nursed his way to it by delicate attentions to general haldane the general's bed was not so comfortable as his he changed places he even went so far as to put a bunch of flowers on the general's table in his dugout you seem very attentive to me major said the general smelling a rat then the major blurted out his desire could he lead a squadron round delville wood could he take that ride into the blue he would give his soul to do it get on with your job said general haldane 
that right into the blue did not encourage the cavalry to the belief that they would be of real value in a warfare of trench lines and barbed wire but for a long time afterward they were kept moving backward and forward between the edge of the battlefields and the back areas to the great encumbrance of the roads until they were guided by the infantry and irritable so their officers told me to the verge of mutiny their irritability was cured by dismounting them for a turn in the trenches and i came across the household cavalry digging by the coniston steps this side of thiepval and cursing their spade work in this book i will not tell again the narrative of that fighting in the summer and autumn of nineteen sixteen which i had written with many details of each day's scene in my collected dispatches called the battles of the somme there is little that i can add to those word pictures which i wrote day by day after haunting experiences amid the ruin of those fields except a summing up of their effect upon the mentality of our men and upon the germans who were in the same bloodbath as they called it and a closer analysis of the direction and mechanism of our military machine looking back upon those battles in the light of knowledge gained in the years that followed it seems clear that our high command was too prodigal in its expenditure of life in small sectional battles and that the army corps and divisional staffs had not established an efficient system of communication with the fighting units under their control it seemed to an outsider like myself that a number of separate battles were being fought without reference to one another in different parts of the field it seemed as though our generals after conferring with one another over telephones said all right tell so-and-so to have a go at thiepval or today we'll send such-and-such -such a division to capture delville wood or we must get that line of trenches outside Bazentine." orders were drawn up on the basis of that decision and passed down to the brigades who read them as their sentence of death and obeyed with or without protest and sent three or four battalions to assault a place which was covered by german batteries round an arc of twenty miles ready to open out a tempest of fire directly a rocket rose from their infantry and to tear up the woods and earth in that neighborhood if our men gained ground if the whole battle line moved forward the german fire would have been dispersed but in these separate attacks on places like Trombe wood and delville wood and later on high wood it was a vast concentration of explosives which ploughed up our men so it was that delville wood was captured and lost several times and became devil's wood to men who lay there under the crash and fury of massed gunfire until a wretched remnant of what had been a glorious brigade of youth crawled out stricken and bleeding when relieved by another brigade ordered to take their turn in that devil's cauldron or to recapture it when german bombing parties and machine gunners had followed in the wake of fire and had crouched again among the fallen trees and in the shell craters and ditches with our dead and their dead to keep them company in delville wood the south african brigade of the ninth division was cut to pieces and i saw the survivors come out with a few officers to lead them in trone wood in bernafi wood in mammoth's wood there had been great slaughter of english troops and welsh the eighteenth division and the thirty-eighth suffered horribly in delville wood many battalions were slashed to pieces before these south africans and after that came high wood all that was left of high wood in the autumn of nineteen sixteen was a thin row of branchless trees 
but in july and august there were still glades under heavy foliage until the branches were lopped off and the leaves scattered by our incessant fire it was an important position vital for the enemy's defense and our attack on the right flank of Pozier ridge above besantine and delville wood giving on the reverse slope a fine observation of the enemy's lines above Montenpuich and cochelette away to the Bopon. for that reason the germans were ordered to hold it at all costs and many german batteries had registered on it to blast our men out if they gained a foothold on our side of the slope or theirs so highwood became another hell on a day of great battle september fourteenth nineteen sixteen when for the first time tanks were used demoralizing the enemy in certain places though there were too few in number to strike a paralyzing blow the londoners gained part of high wood at frightful cost and then were blown out of it other divisions followed them and found the wood stuffed with machine-guns which they had to capture through hurricanes of bullets before they crouched in craters amid dead germans and dead english and then were blown out like the londoners under shell-fire in which no human life could stay for long the seventh division was cut up there the thirty-third division lost six thousand men in advance against uncut wire in the wood which they were told was already captured hundreds of men were vomiting from the effect of gas shells choking and blinded behind the transport wagons and horses were smashed to bits the divisional staffs were often ignorant of what was happening to the fighting men when the attack was launched light signals rockets heliographing were of small avail through the dust the smoke clouds forward observing officers crouching behind parapets as i often saw them and sometimes stood with them watched fires burning red rockets and green gusts of flame and bursting shells and were doubtful what to make of it all telephone wires trailed across the ground for miles were cut into short lengths by shrapnel and high explosive accidents happened as part of the inevitable blunders of war it was all a vast tangle and complexity of strife on july seventeenth i stood in a tent by a staff officer who was directing a group of heavy guns supporting the third division he was tired as i could see by the black lines under his eyes and tightly drawn lips on a camp table in front of him upon which he leaned his elbows there was a telephone apparatus and a little bell kept ringing as we talked now and then a shell burst in the field outside the tent and he raised his head and said they keep crumping about here hope they don't tear this tent to ribbons that sounds like a gas shell then he turned to the telephone again and listened to some voice speaking yes i can hear you yes go on our men seen living highwood yes shelled by our artillery are you sure of that i say are you sure they were our men another message well carry on men digging on road from highwood southeast to longeville yes i've got that they are our men and not boche oh hell get off the line get off the line can't you our men and not boche yes i have that heavily shelled by our guns the staff officer tapped on the table with a lead pencil a tattoo while his forehead puckered then he spoke into the telephone again are you there heavies well don't disturb those fellows for half an hour after that i will give you new orders try and confirm if they are our men he rang off and turned to me that's the trouble 
looks as if we had been pounding our own men like hell some damn fool reports boche gives the reference number asks for the heavies then some other fellow says not boche for god's sake cease fire how is one to tell i could not answer this question but i hated the idea of our men sent forward to capture a road or a trench or a wood and then pounded by our guns they had enough pounding from the enemy's guns there seemed a missing link in the system somewhere probably it was quite inevitable over and over again the wounded swore to god that they had been shelled by our own guns the londoners said so from highwood the australians said so from moquette farm the scots said so from longeval they said why the hell do we get murdered by british gunners what's the good of fighting if we're slaughtered by our own side in some cases they were mistaken it was an enfilade fire from german batteries but often it happened according to the way of that telephone conversation in the tent by bronfay farm the difference between british soldiers and german soldiers crawling over shell craters or crouching below the banks of a sunken road was no more than the difference between two tribes of ants our flying scots however low they flew risking the archies and the machine-gun bullets often mistook khaki for field gray and came back with false reports which led to tragedy chapter eleven people who read my war dispatches will remember my first descriptions of the tanks and those of other correspondents they caused a sensation and a sense of excitement laughter which shook the nation because of the comicality the grotesque surprise the possibility of quicker victory which caught hold of the imagination of people who heard for the first time of those new engines of war so beast-like in appearance and performance the vagueness of our descriptions was due to the censorship which forbade wisely enough any technical and exact definition so that we had to compare them to giant toads mammoths and prehistoric animals of all kinds our accounts did however reproduce the psychological effect of the tanks upon the british troops when these engines appeared for the first time to their astonished gaze on september thirteenth our soldiers roared with laughter as i did when they saw them lolloping up the roads on the morning of the great battle of september fifteenth the presence of these tanks going into action excited all the troops along the front with a sense of comical relief in the midst of the grim and deadly business of attack men followed them laughing and cheering there was a wonderful thrill in the airman's message tank walking up the high street of flares with british army cheering behind wounded boys whom i met that morning grinned in spite of their wounds at our first word about the tanks crikey said a cockney lad of the forty-seventh division i can't help laughing every time i think of them tanks i saw them stamping down german machine-guns as though they were wasp nests the adventures of creme de Mouth, cordon rouge and bing boys on both sides of the beaupont road when they smashed down barbed wire climbed over trenches sat on german redoubts and received the surrender of german prisoners who held their hands up to these monsters and cried comrade were like fairy tales of war by h g wells yet their romance had a sharp edge of reality as i saw in these battles of the somme and afterward more grievously in the cambrai salient and flanders when the tanks were put out of action by direct hits of field guns 
and nothing of humankind remained in them but the charred bones of their gallant crews before the battle in september of sixteen i talked with the pilots of the first tanks and although they were convinced of the value of these new engines of war and were out to prove it they did not disguise from me nor from their own souls that they were going forth upon a perilous adventure with the odds of luck against them i remember one young pilot a tiny fellow like a jockey who took me on one side and said i want you to do me a favor and then scribbled down his mother's address and asked me to write to her if anything happened to him he and other tank officers were anxious they had not complete confidence in the steering and control of their engines it was a difficult and clumsy kind of gear which was apt to break down at a critical moment as i saw when i rode in one on their field maneuver these first tanks were only experimental and the tail arrangement was very weak worse than all mechanical troubles was the short-sighted policy of some authority at g h q who had insisted upon a s c drivers being put to this job a few days before the battle without proper training it is mad and murderous said one of the officers these fellows may have pluck all right i don't doubt it but they don't know their engines nor the double steering trick and they have never been under shell fire it is asking for trouble as it turned out the a s c drivers proved their pluck for the most part splendidly but many tanks broke down before they reached the enemy's lines and in that action in later battles there were times when they bitterly disappointed the infantry commanders and the troops individual tanks commanded by gallant young officers and served by brave crews did astounding feats and some of these men came back dazed and deaf and dumb after forty hours or more of fighting and maneuvering within steel walls intensely hot filled with the fumes of their engines jolted and banged about over rough ground and steering an uncertain course after the loss of their tails which had snapped at the spine but there had not been anything like enough tanks to secure an annihilating surprise over the enemy as afterward was attained in the first battle of cambrai and the troops who had been buoyed up by that hope that at last the machine-gun evil was going to be scotched were disillusioned and dejected when they saw tanks ditched behind the lines or nowhere in sight when once again they had to trudge forward under the flail of machine-gun bullets from earthwork redoubts it was a failure in generalship to give away our secret before it could be made effective i remember sitting in the mess of the gordons in the village of franvillers along the albert road and listening to a long monologue by a gordon officer on the future of the tanks he was a dreamer and visionary and his fellow officers laughed at him a few tanks are no good he said forty or fifty tanks are no good on a modern battlefront we want hundreds of tanks brought up secretly fed with ammunition by tank carriers bringing up field guns and going into action without any preliminary barrage they can smash through the enemy's wire and get over his trenches before he is aware that an attack has been organized up to now all our offensives have been futile because of our preliminary advertisement by prolonged bombardment the tanks can bring back surprise to modern warfare but we must have hundreds of them prolonged laughter greeted the speech but the celtic dreamer did not smile he was staring into the future and what he saw was true though he did not live to see it for in the cambrai battle of november eleventh 
tanks did advance in hundreds and gained an enormous surprise over the enemy and led the way to a striking victory which turned to tragedy because of risks too lightly taken chapter twelve one branch of our military machine developed with astonishing rapidity and skill during those psalm battles the young gentlemen of the air force went all out for victory and were reckless in audacity how far they acted under orders and against their own judgment of what was sensible and sound in fighting risks i do not know general trenchard their supreme chief believed in an aggressive policy at all costs and was a napoleon in this war of the skies intolerant of timidity not squeamish of heavy losses if the balance were tipped against the enemy some young flying men complained to me bitterly that they were expected to fly or die over the german lines whatever the weather or whatever the risks many of them after repeated escapes from anti-aircraft shells and hostile craft lost their nerve shirked another journey found themselves crying in their tents and were sent back home for a spell by squadron commanders with quick observation for the breaking point or made a few more flights and fell to earth like broken birds sooner or later apart from rare cases every man was found to lose his nerve unless he lost his life first that was a physical and mental law but until that time these flying men were the knights errant of the war and most of them did not need any driving to the risks they took with boyish recklessness they were mostly boys babes as they seemed to me when i saw them in their tents or dismounting from their machines on dud days when there was no visibility at all they spent their leisure hours joy-riding to amiens or some other town where they could have a binge they drank many cocktails and roared with laughter over bottles of cheap champagne and flirted with any girl who happened to come within their orbit if not allowed beyond their tents they sulked like baby achilles reading novelettes with their knees hunched up playing the gramophone and ragging each other there was one child so young that his squadron leader would not let him out to go across the battle lines to challenge any german scout in the clouds or do any of the fancy stunts that were part of the next day's program he went to bed sulkily and then came back again in his pajamas with rumpled hair look here sir he said can i go i've got my wings it's perfectly rotten being left behind the squadron commander who told me of the tale yielded all right only don't do any fool tricks next morning the boy flew off played a lone hand chased a german scout dropped low over the enemy's lines machine-gunned infantry on the march scattered them bombed a train chased a german motor-car and after many adventures came back alive and said i've had a rare old time on a stormy day which loosened the tent poles and slapped the wet canvas i sat in a mess with a group of flying officers drinking tea out of a tin mug one boy the youngest of them had just brought down his first hun he told me the tale of it with many details his eyes alight as he described the flight they had maneuvered round each other for a long time then he shot his man en passant the machine crashed on our side of the lines he had taken off the iron crosses of the wings and a bit of the propeller as mementos he showed me these things while the squadron commander who had brought down twenty-four germans winked at me and told me he was going to send them home to hang beside his college trophies 
I guessed he was less than nineteen years old. Such a kid. A few days later, when I went to the tent again, I asked about him. How's that boy who brought down his first Hun? The squadron commander said, Didn't you hear? He's gone west. Brought down in a dogfight. He had a chance of escape, but went back to rescue a pal. A nice boy. They became fatalists after a few flights, and believed in their luck, or their mascots, teddy bears, a bullet that had missed them, china dolls, a girl's lock of hair, a silver ring. Yet at the back of their brains, most of them, I fancy, knew that it was only a question of time before they went west, and with that unconscious thought they crowded in all life intensely in the hours that were given to them, seized all chance of laughter, of wine, of every kind of pleasure within reach, and said their prayers, some of them, with great fervor, between one escape and another. Like young Paul Bencher, who has revealed his soul in verse, his secret terror, his tears, his hatred of death, his love of life, when he went bombing over Bruges. On the mornings of the battles of the Somme, I saw them as the heralds of a new day of strife, flying toward the lines in the first light of dawn. When the sun rose, its rays touched their wings, made them white like cabbage butterflies, or changed them to silver, all a sparkle. I saw them fly over the German positions, not changing their course. Then all about them burst black puffs of German shrapnel, so that many times I held my breath because they seemed in the center of the burst. But generally, when the cloud cleared, they were flying again, until they disappeared in the mists over the enemy's country. There they did deadly work, in single fights with German airmen, or against great odds, until they had an air space to themselves and skimmed the earth like albatrosses in low flight, attacking machine-gun nests, killing or scattering the gunners by a burst of bullets from their Lewis guns, dropping bombs on German wagon transports, infantry, railway trains. One man cut a train in half and saw men and horses falling out, and ammunition dumps, directing the fire of our guns upon living targets, photographing new trenches and works, bombing villages crowded with German troops. That they struck terror into these German troops was proved afterward, when we went into Bopam and Peron, and many villages from which the enemy retreated after the battles of the Somme. Everywhere there were signboards on which was written Fliegelschutz, aircraft shelter, or German warnings of Keep to the sidewalks. This road is constantly bombed by British airmen. They were a new plague of war, and did for a time gain a complete mastery of the air. But later the Germans learned the lesson of low flying and night bombing and in 1917 and 1918 came back at greater strength and made the nights horrible in camps behind the lines and in villages where they killed many soldiers and more civilians. The infantry did not believe much in our air supremacy at any time, not knowing what work was done beyond their range of vision and seeing our machines crashed in no man's land and hearing the rattle of machine guns from hostile aircraft above their own trenches. Those aviators of ours, a general said to me, are the biggest liars in the world. Cocky fellows, claiming impossible achievements. What proof can they give of their preposterous tales? They only go into the air service because they haven't the pluck to serve in the infantry. That was prejudice. The German losses were proof enough of our men's fighting skill and strength, and German prisoners and German letters confirmed all their claims. 
but we were dishonest in our reckoning from first to last and the british public was hoodwinked about our losses Quotes, three of our machines are missing Quotes, six of our machines are missing yes but what about the machines which crashed in no man's land and beyond our lines they were not missing but destroyed and the boys who had flown in them were dead or broken to the end of the war those aviators of ours searched the air for their adventures fought often against overwhelming numbers killed the german champions in single combat or in tourneys in the sky and let down tons of high explosives which caused great death and widespread destruction and in this work they died like flies and one boy's life one of those laughing fatalistic intensely living boys was of no more account in the general sum of slaughter than a summer midge except as one little unit in the armies of the air chapter thirteen i am not strong enough in the science of psychology to understand the origin of laughter and to get into touch with the mainsprings of gaiety the sharp contrast between normal ethics and an abnormality of action provides a grotesque point of view arousing ironical mirth it is probable also that surroundings of enormous tragedy stimulate the sense of humor of the individual so that any small ridiculous thing assumes the proportion of monstrous absurdity it is also likely certain i think that laughter is an escape from terror a liberation of the soul by mental explosion from the prison walls of despair and brooding in the decameron of boccaccio a group of men and women encompassed by plague retired into seclusion to tell one another mirthful immoralities which stirred their laughter they laughed while the plague destroyed society around them when they knew that its foul germs were on the prowl for their own bodies so it was in this war where in many strange places and in many dreadful days there was great laughter i think sometimes of a night i spent with the medical officers of a tent hospital in the fields of the somme during those battles with me as a guest went a modern falstaff a ton of flesh who sweats to death and lards the lean earth as he walks along he was a man of anecdotes drawn from the sinks and stews of life yet with a sense of beauty lurking under his coarseness and a voice of fine sonorous tone which he managed with art and a melting grace on the way to the field hospital he had taken more than one nip of whiskey his voice was well oiled when he sang a greeting to a medical major in a florid burst of melody from italian opera the major was a little irish medico who had been through the south african war and in tropical places where he had drunk firewater to kill all manner of microbes he suffered abominably from asthma and had had a heart seizure the day before our dinner at his mess and told us that he would drop down dead as sure as fate between one operation and another on the poor bloody wounded who never ceased to flow into his tent but he was in a laughing mood and thirsty for a laugh-making liquid he had two whiskies before the dinner began to wet his whistle his fellow officers were out for an evening's joy but nervous of the colonel an austere soul who sat at the head of the mess with the look of a man afraid that merriment might reach outrageous heights beyond his control a courteous man he was and rather sad his presence for a time acted as a restraint upon the company 
until all restraint was broken by the Falstaff with me, who told soul-crashing stories to the little Irish major across the table, and sang love lyrics to the orderly who brought round the cottage pie and pickles. There was a tall, thin young surgeon who had been carving up living bodies all day and many days, and now listened to that fat rogue with an intensity of delight that lit up his melancholy eyes, watching him gravely between gusts of deep laughter, which seemed to come from his boots. There was another young surgeon, once of Bart's, who made himself the cup-server of the fat knight, and kept his wine at the brim, and encouraged him to fresh audacities of anecdotary, with a humorous glance at the colonel's troubled face. The colonel was forgotten after dinner. The little Irish major took the lid off the boiling pot of mirth. He was entirely mad, as he assured us, between dances of a wild and primitive type, stories of adventure in far lands, and spasms of asthmatic coughing, when he beat his breast and said, A pox in my bleeding heart! Falstaff was playing Juliet to the Romeo of the tall young surgeon, singing falsetto like a fat German angel dressed in a loose-fitting khaki, with his belt undone. There were charades in the tent. The boy from Bart's did remarkable imitations of a gamecock challenging a rival bird, of a cow coming through a gate, of a general addressing his troops, most comical of all. Several glasses were broken. The corkscrew was disregarded as a useless implement, and whiskey bottles were decapitated against the tent poles. I remember vaguely the crowning episode of the evening, when the little major was dancing the Irish jig with a kitchen chair, when Falstaff was singing the prologue of Pagliacci to the stupefied colonel, when the boy, once of Bart's, was roaring like a lion under the mess-table, and when the tall, melancholy surgeon was at the top of the tent-pole, scratching himself like a gorilla in his native haunts. Outside, the field hospital was quiet, under a fleecy sky with a crescent moon. Through the painted canvas of the tent city candlelight glowed with a faint rose-colored light, and the red cross hung limp above the camp where many wounded lay, waking or sleeping, tossing in agony, dying in unconsciousness. Far away over the fields, rockets were rising above the battle lines. The sky was flickering with the flush of gunfire. The red glare rose and spread below the clouds where some ammunition dump had been exploded. Old Falstaff fell asleep in the car on the way back to our quarters, and I smiled at the memory of great laughter in the midst of tragedy. End of section 17